Is laughter really the best medicine? Coming up on Love Thy Neighbor. You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothman. Welcome back to another episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast spooky enough to be entirely dedicated to one mid-century, midwestern white guy theologian, your boy, Reinhold the illest realist, Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined as always by co-hosts Zach Narrison and John Weatherly. Yes, that's right. Aaron has off this week. So my good friend, former professor, and dare I say friend of the pod, Dr. John Weatherly is our special guest. We had John on the program last year, almost to the week uh, during the spooky October interviews. We talked Christian nationalism and even subjected him to a really awful book defending Christian nationalism. And he still came back on with us. So, uh, you know, John needs no introduction. I introduced him last time. Um, Always a pleasure. Welcome. Thank you. It is an honor to be here. Um, this, this podcast is the thing that keeps me sane while I cut my grass and, uh, uh, just, just glad to, glad to be be on and know that I can skip an episode of listening, but it's in a season when the grass only needs to be cut every other week. Okay. Good. Well, um, yeah. And I, uh, I got to reiterate, by the way, I mentioned this before recording, but how weird it is to call you John. And so I'm going to slip up on this, but uh, when, whenever we have you or Dr. Dorian, Gary on, because you were my old professors, it just feels wrong um, to call you by your first name. So uh, um, I apologize for just as wrong as it feels problems. for me to call you Dr. Bailey. I'm yeah, sure. I know. I know. I And it's weird for me, for people of your stature to call me that stature so oh my goodness it's, yeah, yeah it's weird well before we get into it uh we should tell our listeners about what happened last week we had an interview uh with john milbank set up for months it was supposed to be a surprise for aaron because he's one of aaron's favorites um well we got uh uber prepared i drank a huge coffee and diet do uh to get amped up for this thing um, got on there, and fittingly for the spooky October interviews, we got ghosted. <laughs> but it wasn't intentional. We got in touch with him uh, that same day, and there was just a mix-up on planning, and that's never happened before. But he agreed to come on with us again, so stay tuned for that. All right, so we're here with with uh, Dr. Weatherly today. Dang it, John. Uh, we're here with John Weatherly today. Uh, and he read a Niebuhr chapter with us, and it's uh, one of my faves because it's so out of character for Niebuhr and really any theologian to write, um, at least topic-wise. It's on humor and faith. That's the name of the chapter, humor and faith. It comes from Niebuhr's 1946 work, uh, Discerning the Signs of the Times, Sermons for Today and Tomorrow. And it's written a lot like Beyond Tragedy. If you've listened to any of our episodes uh, to our audience, if you if you've listened to any of our episodes on Beyond Tragedy, He's basically writing these things called sermonic essays. He begins with a scripture, and then he reflects on that scripture through the entire chapter or sermon. Um, And then I took the liberty of just of giving like titles to these sections that he has. He has four sections in all. I'm calling them um, the, the section one, laughing at the incongruities. 
Section two, what laughter does and doesn't do. Uh, section three, laughing at ourselves. And section four, laughing at humanity. Okay, with all that said, I will ask our guest, John, if he would like to do the honors in reading the selected scripture. I would be glad to. It is the fourth verse of the second psalm, uh, which coincidentally happens to be my favorite psalm. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. Love that. And I had that in mind, too. When I saw yeah. this, I was like, we got to do this one together because I knew that you like this one. Actually, I think that I asked you, what's your favorite messianic prophecy? And you said this one. Yeah. But I didn't realize it was your favorite psalm, too. But I guess. Yeah, that's yeah. I, I don't read the Bible much, so I have a limited you know, range of favorites. <laughs> Um, so to get us started, I guess, uh, this first section, um, I had named laughing at the incongruities, just reading this scripture. Let's respond to that first. The picture of God laughing. Uh, what, what is you guys first response to just this? And what do you think Niebuhr might, what did you think Niebuhr might do with it when you, when you first saw it? Go ahead, Zach. Well, I was just going to say, I thought that he was, uh, going to focus on kind of, um, cause elsewhere he uses this. Uh, the laughter of God to kind of unravel um, to kind of always keep us looking at ourselves in a limited way to remind us of our limitations, to kind of constantly have that perspective that God looks on us with limitations. And he, that, that obviously he touches on that in the passage, but it definitely goes in a direction, some directions I wasn't expecting. Yeah. Yeah. This is um, for me, it's kind of a, it's, it's a very, it's always a very expansive kind of an experience to read Niebuhr because I'm trained as an exegete. And, and so naturally I go to any, anything that is dealing with a biblical text and I'm looking for meaning in context. Um, he's clearly aware of the meaning of this text in context. He acknowledges it. It's just not what he's interested in mm -hmm. primarily. Uh, it's, you know, the, the essay is much more about the human experience of laughter and, and what it tells us about the human condition and about the nature of faith. Um, even the necessity of faith, yeah. kind of the inevitability of faith. I think that's right. Uh, and and, I, and I, I wonder if he would have done himself uh, more of a service if, had he put the part in the scripture that precedes this about the nation mm. raging and yeah. uh, and conspiring and all that type of stuff. And then God's laughing at them. Um, well, yeah, I mean, he, he does acknowledge that. He does kind of get into mm -hmm. it. I think there's probably just this kind of, homiletical tradition of preaching on a single verse hmm. um, that that he's that he's drawing on um, and um, that that you know sometimes does then exposit the context and other times uses the text as a as a jumping off point for a, for another 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 place i mean i joke all the time that if you went into new testament studies you did it because you like people telling you like to tell people they're doing it wrong um <laughs> And, and, and this is a situation where, you know, I could just put on my robe and say, you know, this is not what this text is about at all, but he knows that. And, uh, you know, not, not everything that, that we can, we can know and affirm as Christians is something that we're going to derive from immediate exegesis. Well, I think that's really interesting. You say that because he's obviously like, I, I think that as I remember, correct, if I remember correctly, he knew he was taught Greek and Hebrew at a very young age. So he's very familiar with the biblical text. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting. So sometimes the liberties that he takes, okay. 
sometimes the, I, and this is a weird point that maybe we can get into and unpack is that I, I somewhat wonder if this verse contradicts with what he says, like about mm-hmm. where, where laughter resides, right? Mm-hmm. As it is, is, you know, obviously metaphorical and saying that uh, laughter presides um, in heaven, you know, metaphorically or anthropomorphized, whatever you want to say it. But at the end, he says that laughter doesn't exist in the Holy of Holies. And yeah, so, yeah. you know, it's just kind of like a, I mean, I see what he's saying and I know where, I know where he's going, but it's just kind of weird that he chose this verse. Like he said, I, I think he maybe could have benefited from using the wider context. Yeah. 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 Perhaps so. Um, but yeah, it is, you know, it is what it is. And I think the essay could work just as well if he hadn't used this psalm at all. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah. Yeah, I'm go- I'm going back and forth here because I think and clearly like I'm really interested in hearing. I know that early on in our podcast and when this was just a kind of a book club, a Niebuhr book club between Zach and I, that Zach would have repeatedly issues with like how Niebuhr might be reading something. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of my like I felt like it was my obligation is to kind of break Zach a little bit from the text to get him to look at it more openly. Um, obviously, there are pros and cons of that, but um, but it, it is actually somewhat in keeping with what he does here. And if we leech on to the text in a way that's so serious, uh, we mm-hmm. might we might end up kind of missing a lot of the um, creative and uh, uh, different perspectives offered by scripture. Yeah, and and I think the your your use of the word incongruity to um, to title the section uh, really gets at that. The fundamental incongruity of of the laughter in Psalm four is between the pretensions of the raging nation yeah. uh, towards uh, so their own sovereignty and rebellion, and God who sits on the throne in heaven and who enthrones his king, uh, and so who laughs derisively, like. You know, and is it derisive laughter as, you know, like the, the laughter of the evil genius or of the parent who's watching the child? Uh, you know, and he talks about this with parenting and so forth later on in the essay and so forth. You know, and that's just that's left left open. But uh, but but it is that incongruity. And then to kind of latch on to incongruity and say, OK, when we laugh, what are we laughing at? And to say it's the incongruities of life. It's yeah. the it's the the elite guy who slips on the ice and falls and loses his top hat. And, and that kind of thing. Yeah, he gives some great examples of this. Um, I, I want to well, get you guys comment on this. Oh, go ahead, Zach. Well, I was just going to say, you know, and obviously we'll get into this, but he he makes some, I think he did, he maybe would have benefited from defining or, or getting closer to a definition of what humor is. Because I like, I think people have a very wide view and maybe they didn't back then. Maybe humor had a very distinct, but like humor and like sarcasm are different things. And I think he touches on sarcasm in here. Um, and there's also like, yeah, yeah. So, but, but humor and sarcasm are also inter interrelated. And so it's like, what, what kind of humor or laughter or derision laughing going on? Sarcasm isn't always funny. Sometimes sarcasm is cutting. Um, and so, but I think when it is funny, it's normally pointing out some incongruity, um, Mm -hmm. you know, some irony or something like that about the, about the person you're directing it toward. Maybe, I don't know. Because, yeah, I, yeah, I, I think so. And of course, you know, uh, this this essay is just yet another example of the old saw that the most unfunny thing in the world is an essay about humor. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely right. Well, and, and and I would also say that 
one of the weird parts here is that really the Psalm 2-4, it, it really has more to do with like the sovereignty of God probably. And it, in this essay, he makes a, a lot, he, he makes a really big point about the freedom of humanity, right? He he maintains the non-freedom of humanity with the freedom of humanity, but the Psalm 2-4 is like very much like, hey, God is sovereign. And then mm -hmm. that's like kind of lost in this a little bit. Um, I just wanted to touch on the the incongruity that John just pointed out about the an essay on humor mm -hmm. is not funny. And but that in itself is kind of funny because it I is. ridiculous. It is. Yeah. Yeah. You just you just have, a, you know, like one quarter of your mouth upturned as you're reading this saying, yeah, this is funny. And that's funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, that's good. So uh, I want to like maybe slide a piece of paper here because Niebuhr presents kind of a new tension here that I've never seen anywhere else. He says, and I'll quote him, he says, humor is in fact a prelude to faith mm -hmm. and laughter is the beginning of prayer. Humor yeah. is in fact a prelude to faith and laughter is the beginning of prayer. And this kind of gets in with what Zach is saying about we like there's a point where the laughter and humor ends and it's within the sanctuary it's within prayer something like that but it's a, it's a prelude like it's a beginning of of something like this um help uh, can you guys like help us like i don't know uh differentiate these things well you know i i, I as as i came on that sentence uh which is in the second second paragraph i underlined it and wrote thesis in the margin mm -hmm. uh, you know this really is what i think the, the whole and 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 this is this is where you just realize you know even even when this guy isn't trying he's brilliant yeah. um you know this is just such a tremendous insight to realize that the genesis of prayer is in the recognition of the incongruities of life and and it is in the looking outside of ourselves for some way to resolve those yeah uh and then you know the the more we observe the more we see and the more that we look outside ourselves for that resolution, the more we realize how deeply seated those incongruities are and how they go to, you know, just the essence of who we are as, as, as human beings uh, and so forth. And he just so, you know, skillfully lays out different pieces of that so that in the end you realize you're, and I, I know we've got a whole essay to talk about, but you realize you're just kind of painted into a corner Um where you, you can't even laugh anymore because the incongruities are so great. And, and I'm no, I'm no, you know, I'm, I'm even less adjacent to Kierkegaard than I am to Niebuhr, but I just feel like there's this kind of Kierkegaardian. Okay. You know, I, I I'm, I'm, I'm trapped. I'm, I'm just going to put paradoxes. it all on God yeah. at this point. Yeah. The paradox draws me to that point. And yeah. So this thing that is, is common and fundamental to our experience that, that we find in, you know, thing, it's a thing that we do, you know, with the everyday occurrences of life, like slipping on the ice. It's the thing that we do in the awful occurrences of life, like death. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, there's always at least as much laughter uh, as, as tears in a, you know, in a, in a healthy funeral. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it is that that appropriating of the paradox. Uh, and where does that take us? Yeah. I think also there's a missing word that would I think. And maybe he says it, I can't remember, but I think maturity, you know, it, there's mm -hmm. a real between, you know, just from like experience, like one of the things I love about Niebuhr is like you, you go through, you filter back through your experiences that you've had. And oftentimes he's pretty spot on to like experiences. And if I think about the, like the most mature people that I know, they're, they're 
connection. They they understand this connection between humor and maybe not prayer, but but a a a recognition of like their yeah looking outside themselves and recognizing hey I'm not all that you know I mean I I'm not <laughs> quite as cool and as well put together as I think I am and they mm-hmm. kind of live with with that and that's like an essential part of maturity. Um, I think that's where this is headed. I mean, the, the and mm-hmm. it's, it's the ability to stand outside yourself. And he's going to get into kind of child development later, which I think is really interesting. But uh, and, and for the sake of like this section, he uh, points out he asked the question, "We laugh at what?" And he brings out uh, the you know like an example of the sassy maid or butler in the family. And I, I think like somebody came to probably all of our minds the way that a certain person person in a comedy uh functions and here i am not being funny at all in the way i'm describing something funny but you know the way that this funny person functions is really he's just a mirror of showing the you know the absurdities of the of rich people or powerful people from an outside perspective so this butler is able to throw in that sassy line to be like you guys are actually ridiculous getting all caught up on all this type of stuff and to point out these incongruities, whereas they could not see them themselves. They needed that outside. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not a Catholic, but I think actually the person I think of actually is, um, I guess, Pope Francis is known to, to crack some jokes and to deliberate humor. And um, I, I just thought of that as like, you know, he's supposed to be the height of seriousness, the height of, you know, the Catholic Church and all these things. But there's something that's makes him feel a little bit more real of a person or a little bit more mature to me than somebody who takes themselves so seriously that they have no, they don't have mm-hmm. that, you know I mean? That there's not that element to their, um, I think we've all probably experienced people, especially in the church who take themselves too seriously. And this is quite a rebuke of that. Uh, yeah. Humor is an essential part of helping you get out of that, I guess. Yeah. Um, he gets kind of dark here though, for a moment in this, first section he starts talking about uh things that he starts talking about how faith does a similar thing as humor but it addresses incongruities that are maybe a threat to our life or a meaning of life um so for instance uh in my mind went to kind of what he discussed in the last chapter and that is like our place in the cosmos um the uh the copernican principle like the pale blue dot like our ability to see ourselves from this outside perspective is stunning and humans are incredible and but what does that tell us about ourselves though is we're actually not that incredible and we're we're pretty lame you know mm-hmm. there's this natural incongruity that you we can never escape from where we want to he he says in a um i think this was shared on love thy neighbor twitter that he says, you know, some philosophies want to expose the misery of man. And he says, some some philosophies try to expose um, the greatness of man. Uh, but only in the gospel, he says, can you find both the misery mm-hmm. and the greatness. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and, uh, and so this faith is kind of this crashing of the incongruities and to being able to hold both of them uh, together. Yeah, I've, I, you know, I've had a kind of an obsession for several years with um, the phrase, the, the well-known phrase from Psalm 139, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Yeah. And that is precisely this juxtaposition. The wonderfully part is, you know, all the crazy, amazing capacities that human beings have to understand and create. Um, and the fearfully is um, our frail mortality. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, our, and, and our, the frailty of our, of our, 
perception and, and judgment and, and, and everything else. Um, so, you know, that, that combination is, is the essential paradox um, in all of this. And again, the essay just, just kind of paints you into a corner where it's not, you, you've got to, you've got to find this res- resolution and, and not just a resolution in the way that he does it in um, a God who is outside of that paradox and can somehow tie it up, but in, uh, in, in the incarnate Jesus who dies on the cross, which is just. Which I think is an interesting, like if we think about it theatrically, kind of as a deus uh, ex, ex machina, is that, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. is that how you say it? Um, my mind went to Jurassic Park, where Jurassic Park, the movie, <laughs> spends all this time trying to pit the greatness of humans and able to create these, use genetics mm-hmm. to create these things. And it's kind of the Frankensteinian trope of the yeah. monster comes back and tries to kill. So it does a great job of crushing these ironies into each other. And which is why, by the way, there might be a fine line between humor and horror too. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Um, but uh, the deus ex machina at the end is the T-Rex is the salvation. So it's almost this message that keep plugging at science you know, and it will mm-hmm. save us still. But what it is for Niebuhr, though, is bound up in the cross, mm-hmm. um, which is here, but not yet, which is when it happened, but it's still trying to seek resolution. So yeah. we don't have we have to live with these incongruities in the time being, which demands of us faith. Yeah. yeah. Had to give my yep. Jurassic Park plug. And I think it's really interesting because it really gives you a vision for when people you know, I I I, th- I immediately thought of when reading this the, the there's a, a group of people. It would be the anti-apologetics group and the apologetics g- community. Interesting. I think that they both sides could use a heavy dose of this. Uh, this what he's kind of getting at here. I mean, I thought of I watched this. Uh, what was it called? Uh, like a lecture by Jerry Cohn Co- or Jerry Coyne. He's a professor, uh, big advocate for basically uh, evolution in schools, that type of thing, um, and he gets the end of this lecture talking about how deter like how determinism works and the evidence we have from evolution that determinism is a fundamental part of reality and all these things and then at the very end of his lecture which i thought was a really good thing for him to add he he talked about and i can't remember the guy who he was talking to but he talked about a conversation that he had with one of the leading physicists in the united states and he said you know he he was explaining all this information to him and saying hey you know i believe this this is why determinism is the way and this physicist just said, yeah, I don't believe that. It just, it doesn't match my experience. We'll figure it out eventually, but I, I don't believe that. Yeah. I just thought it was, I, I think about it all the time for some reason, but it, it's this hilarious kind of like, yeah, there's tons of evidence, but yet here's this physicist and he's saying, hey, my fundamental experience tells me that I have some sort of free will. And- well, when he goes to work in the morning and does physics, you know, the, the fundamental thing that has led this other guy to determinism if he operated, you know, if he took determinism seriously, he couldn't function as a physicist. Yeah, that's right. You know, you're in that you're in that 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 paradoxical loop of, you know, this isn't my decision. It's just it's just a bunch of, you know, uh, particles ramming into each other. And yeah. Yeah. So, well, and you could be that person who just stays in that camp where you're like, there is no incongruity here. There's no incongruity here. But I'm starting to recognize that, that that's actually there's no actual resolution. There's still that fundamental experience where you feel like you have agency, right. you know, and, right. and that very much defies everything we have in terms of evidence. So, yeah. And that comical, exactly. that comical incongruity does so much to open up conversations. Um, and this we'll get into, I think, uh, I think the third part maybe, but I, 
um so the, so i got into some tussle with a with an atheist uh recently and i don't like those wars i think that they're so annoying the atheists yeah. and the and the the christian apologists and somehow my feed just got hammered by all these people just started pouring into my timeline and it's because i know i do it to myself like i like i see somebody and i'm like no and i have to comment and then the algorithm's like oh you want more of this here take some mm -hmm. more mm -hmm. and then it just feeds into itself but i got into this argument with somebody and he kept on trying to pit me into like a fundamentalist camp so that he can mm -hmm. kind of destroy me and i'm just like who do you think you're talking like and finally, I asked him, and this tweet actually ended up going somewhat viral because they gave somewhat of an honest answer and they retweeted it. But I asked, you know, is the quality of your Christian interlocutor, interlocutors uh, diminishing the quality of your atheism? And mm. um, and just pointing out, just injecting that little irony in there kind of open them up to be like, you know what, maybe that's right. And then they yeah. started fighting amongst themselves, the atheists about, okay, but who's really, who should we really even take seriously though? Cause they're all nuts. And then the, another person be like, no, there's actually some serious, you know, people just injecting some of this, these ironies and injecting some of this humor, uh, the incongruities, exposing them to people opens up. Some, yeah. Some... Yeah. No, you named it. Um, you, you are, isolating yourself from incongruities if you dismiss a whole class of people as serious people yeah you know as an atheist anyone who even entertains the notion of a deity is is not worth dialoguing with because that's so self-evidently absurd mm -hmm. um and and so you treat everyone with contempt and reduce them to the level of the of the you know the the straw man theist yeah um the yeah, it's that is that is such 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 a common thing. Of course, it doesn't just happen on that side. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. And I would just add in one more. Like, um, I've always thought of you know Sam Harris's book, The End of Faith, and it's almost like you know he could have benefited from looking looking in on himself. You know, what I mean, looking in mm -hmm. and being like, yes, in your experience and where you think things are going, but go and talk to like the common person, and you'll realize that like. For the most part, no, there's no end of faith. You know what I mean? Like, like it's not coming to an end as soon as you thought, right? You know, thinking of Nietzsche's parable, right? The madman screaming, you know, God is dead and we've killed him. Oh, wait. You know what I mean? You might, you might find yourself saying, oh, wait, you know? Yeah. This gets into like a concern of mine that, so I, I brought up uh, in my notes a little bit later, I forget what, what, uh, so we're just off the map by the now by now, guys, like we're not I'm going to try to pull us back into section two here in a second. But um, but I started thinking about something you said, made me start thinking about the importance. Oh, it was, it was the part where it was about laughing at oneself, um, mm -hmm. the how powerful it is for a preacher to add self-deprecation um into their sermons and everybody just instinctually knows this everybody as soon as somebody can make fun of themselves a little bit they automatically become more trusting mm -hmm. and i had the question of you know why do no okay if that works for preaching why are no politicians funny you know why is there n no humor today you know what it's it seems like that would be such a benefit in order to be self-deprecating uh to have a little bit of humility and to show that 
Um, and it would also go along with with Zach and the apologetics question. Somebody who can be humble and admit like what they can't know. Uh, I would much rather debate a Richard Dawkins type who's so confident mm -hmm. than somebody who can, you know, uh, give you some points or two and say, you know, yeah, you might be right about that. I'm not sure, but I still believe this. And, you know, that conversation seems a lot harder than the simplistic one that, you know, yeah. you everybody know, takes seriously. Now that you mentioned that, you know, that, that would almost be one of the most defining, the lack of humor might be of the most defining quality of our current political state just in the yeah. sense that yeah they take themselves too seriously <laughs> like they yeah. really like they really uh and when there is humor it's it's laughing. to the detriment of it, it's making fun of the other side or something yeah that's yeah. the only time you see humor what i mean is like they'll take a person like trump like trump literally cannot see that he like some of the things he does are so laughably i mean stupid just, just you know what i mean like there's just things he does that are like wow that was really you know, and you could go across, you know, Trump's just an easy target, but the, the, there are other people who many, many other politicians who, who really take themselves super seriously. Like, it's like, you know, when you have uh, politicians who are advocating, oh, pro family, pro everything, and then it comes out that they're in the middle of an affair, you know, I mean, like the, the governor of uh, Montana, I mean, uh, mm -hmm. South Dakota, you know, you got to acknowledge that to some degree and acknowledge that, wow, that's very ironic. You know, there's, there's some, I don't know about humor, but there's humor in that. You know what I mean? There's a, mm -hmm. there's a, yeah, I mean, we, we we should all realize that Jim Gaffigan is much more persuasive than anyone in politics. Yes, yes, you know, and his and his whole routine is is self deprecation. So then, why is it not there? Like, why this is clearly an a a, a very effective means of winning people. Yeah. Uh, to to your argument and persuasion, and there and we have presidents in our history who used humor in that way. Yeah. To yeah. a very great effect. I think yeah. it makes. But why is it not there now? Is it I, is it because everybody? Yeah, go ahead, Zach. Well, I think it. I think and this is total speculation, not a political theorist. But I would say it makes a certain type of politics impossible. When you are self-deprecating, you cannot be uh, the ideologue. You know, I mean, you cannot be the person who who is the pure representation of a certain politic. Um, you can't. Mm. When when you're fighting good and evil, you can't admit that evil is good. You know what I mean? And I think you see yes. I think there's the purest mentality and the purest can't be seen as fraternizing with the enemy. So the Manichaeism yeah. of today has kind of extinguished. <laughs> John is celebrating the Manichaeism today has kind of extinguished any attempts at humor, humility, anything like that. Along with yeah, it. absolutely. I've been complaining about Manichaean rhetoric and politics for two decades uh, publicly. It's on record. OK, I just want to state that. <laughs> Um, but no, I completely agree. And, and, and just to, you know, uh, most of what I know from Niebuhr is phrases and aphorisms. And this we're right at the core of the, you know, seeking to have an easy conscience yeah. uh, with this. I can, I can rule out a whole class of people, a whole class of ideas in a stroke. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> we are in the middle of, of, um, denying the, um, the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in this as well, uh, yeah, my own limitations, the, you know, the epistemological humility that ought to come from reckoning with my creatureliness um, is, uh, is just gone in all of this. And that's, and that's, that's why you become very unfunny. Do you think that some of that, though, is a consequence of circumstance in the sense that there, there is a definite 
uh, and maybe maybe not because I, I'm only 30 years old. You might laugh at this when I say this, but <laughs> it seems like it seems like there the crises are also a part of this. There is a certain sense in which, um, and, and there are real crises, and then there are perceived ones. A real one, right? Global warming, right? It it has a sense of urgency in which you don't want to laugh about it. You don't want to make jokes. Like it it needs to be taken with the utmost seriousness. And then I think that propels people, in, at least on in the Democratic Party, to be very serious about it all the time. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And 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 I, you know, I think it might eliminate some of that laughter. And I think you could find a million different issues, yeah. you know, um, that are like that. But that's one that's prevalent. Um, yeah, well, that's I, why I that, suppose. Oh, I was just going to say that that's why I suppose the, you know, the the caricature of the committed progressive is someone who says that's not funny. Yeah. 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 Well. well I was going to say that's what made that uh, that Netflix show Don't Look Up so yeah. so good is that it was able to to laugh at human beings and our culture and how ridiculous we are and how we could literally talk ourselves into our own destruction <laughs> if it's a spectacle enough, you know, mm-hmm. um, and it, just being able to stand on the outside of that, be the butler, be the be the God laughing, uh, whatever. Um laughing at us from that transcendent perspective uh that that's that's more alarming than any leonardo dicaprio or al gore documentary we might watch on on yeah and and you know and right in line with the insights of this um of this article because the people who get it at the end have accepted their limitations yeah having a koinonia meal yes fascinating yeah i never thought about that explain that a little bit more Okay, so yeah, spoiler alert. At the end of spoiler the movie, the people, yeah, the people who understand that this this uh, asteroid is hurtling towards Earth and will destroy, you know, all of human life except the rich people who ex- escape on the um, uh, the rocket um, and are put into suspended animation for some period of eons until they travel to some habitable world elsewhere. Um, and I won't mention what happens at that point. But but these people are gathered simply around an ordinary table in an ordinary home sharing a meal and and you know and welcoming some some newly found you know strangers um and eating and laughing up until the moment in which they're all you know vaporized um and um and, and what have they done there they have accepted the limitations of their creatureliness um they haven't quite put their hope in in a transcendent god but they certainly are doing what the people who know the Christian God have done from the beginning, which is they came close, didn't they? Didn't they offer a prayer? Lord's prayer. Didn't somebody pray. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Goodness, it's been a while since I since I. Yeah, started. I'm pretty sure they read the Lord's prayer. I was very shocked by that. Yeah, we should we should have prepped this movie too along. With the yeah, movie. we should. Have. That's this... fascinating. So to put it in kind of a, a Niburian um, framework here, so there was the incongruities of we can't get out of this doom we mm-hmm. we have realized and we've had our laughs at how ridiculous that is but now comes time to pay the piper and now there's no more laughing now there's you know uh either despair uh or some reach for the transcendent i guess mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah well, do you want to get into that part of the chapter well i wanted to cover this this next part when laughter what laughter does and doesn't do, because he actually has a really good section here about like kind of leading up to the cross, because obviously we see laughter at the cross. Um, and he 
and we see laughter among slaves as well he brings up right um so i guess what when is laughter helpful unhelpful uh what does it do and i guess what can we count on it to do and what can we not count on it to, to do if that makes sense I love the paragraph about the way that um, laughter can maintain the self-respect of the slave, yeah. um, um, which I thought was a huge insight. And, you know, I would I would kind of tag on to this. The, the rich tradition of Jewish humor, yeah. you know, is 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 right here. Um, David Frum was was relating a, a, a joke that um, that is apparently he had heard from a Jewish friend to two guys in in um, Tel Aviv are sitting on a bench reading a newspaper. One of them's reading the Jerusalem Times. The other one's reading a anti-Semitic scandal sheet. Mm. And the guy with the Times says to the other guy, why are you reading that filth? He said, look at your paper. Wars, murders, pogroms. Look at mine. Jewish people control space lasers. I like good news. Yeah. You know, which is, <laughs> which is you know, uh, which is, again, this this laughing at the incongruities, but as is a way of, you know, this long tradition um, in in this globally despised community of 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 recovering a, a sense of dignity about all of that. Hmm. It's um, interesting. I have to go on for that from that the Jewish humor thing, because um, I had a quote prepared from a tweet about the differences between Seinfeld and Friends. And Seinfeld mm. is, of course, um, written, had Jewish writers, and yeah. uh, and this and this is the tweet. It's it's profound, really. It says um, the primary difference between Friends and Seinfeld is that while all the main characters in both uh, in both shows are in a state of de of despair, mm -hmm. Seinfeld's writers are aware that the characters are in despair and are not moral exemplars. This is why Seinfeld ends with the heroes, quote unquote, all being sentenced to prison for their moral failures and selfishness, while Friends concludes with characters finding their ideal spouse, moving out to the suburbs and finding a happy, happily ever afters, all the while blissfully unaware of their state of despair. And this will not win new fans to the pod, but I'll say that's why Seinfeld is funny and Friends isn't. That's right. That's yeah. right. Well, so th there is one part of the second section, though, that like that I, I, I mean, you can tell me if we want to get here yet. But he says there is no humor in the cross because the justice mm -hmm. and the mercy of God are fully revealed in it. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was deeply ironic because literally that that is the laughter of God in the sense that it, it that's the sovereignty of God amongst the incongruities of humanity that that lead to Psalm 2-4, where it says that, you know, man, man has all these plans, but God laughs in derision at their plans. Well, mm -hmm. that, that laughter is embodied here in this act on the cross that yes. he has overcome the... What an interesting distinction. Yeah, what do we make of that? Like, it, it, uh, because he will go into those differences. Yeah, I think, I think structurally he might say laughter is the prelude to the cross. Yeah. Um, and is is maybe the response to the empty tomb. Um but uh, but at that moment where where the paradox is resolved in vicarious suffering, um, yeah, there is there is the only laughter is the, the laughter of those who falsely deride. Yeah. Maybe, you know? yeah. Maybe I'm taking the metaphor too far, but to say that maybe, you know, uh, you could say that it's the God's prelude to the cross. 
and not say necessarily that God is laughing at the cross, but it is really the embodiment of why he's laughing at it the cross. It is. It now. is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is maybe a clarifying quote here. He says, um, mercy and justice are provisionally contained in laughter. And this is similar to the slave thing, too, um, of yeah. the ability to laugh. Uh, and he says, so mercy and justice are provisionally contained in laughter. They're just maintained there. And the, and the contradiction between them is tentatively resolved in the sense of humor. So it's just at the time. But the final resolution of justice, fully developed and of mercy, fully matured, is possible only when the sharp edge of justice is turned upon the, the executor um, mm -hmm. of judgment without being blunted. So it's kind of like when people say it was yeah. funny and then there's it such, got real. Yeah, and there's, there's so much of this section where I, I, you know, I feel like I'm reading a 20th century um, uh, version of of Anselm, uh, you know, discussing the necessity of the atonement, hmm. uh, the necessity of the incarnation, the necessity of the atonement. Just doing a thought experiment: how far can I go, you know, apart from Scripture, just with, 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 you know, categorical necessities to to, to drive to this conclusion? Fascinating. Um, yeah, he's just he's painting us into this this experiential uh, corner uh, where where this is this is the this is the only way out. Yeah, well, I'll go ahead, Zach. Well, I I can't remember, but he also just you were asking the the question was about I think it's in section two, but I can't remember. He says that um, humor gives us a vantage point, um, and so that would be another thing like what it can and can't do. Um, it can give us advantage over ourselves. That might be section three. I can't remember. No, that is section two. Because, oh. and, and this is something that I wanted to go off of, is he said, and I quote, there were those who thought that we could laugh Mussolini and Hitler mm. um, out of the courts, but laughter alone never destroys a great seat of power and authority in history. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that that is... You know that. What did you guys I, think of? What did you guys think of? First thought. Oh, I don't want to say. <laughs> I thought. I thought of Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's how he we tried dealing it. with him. Yeah. But, it, it's almost like sometimes humor can become like uh, I think it's called virtue signaling, where people will make jokes and humor instead of doing taking necessary action to shore up democratic institutions. They'll just sit back and say, "Oh, this is so." What an, what an idiot. Uh, just to show like their righteousness. But to 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 relieve themselves of their anxieties and angst, instead of saying, hey, Hope. we yeah. need to action to say that this is not an acceptable thing. And so it's almost like a passiveness. It's almost like, a, hey, I'm going to make fun of this and kind of take a back seat. And I think that maybe that's part of why, you know, there's a difference between a politician and a comedian. Because I've always wondered sometimes comedians are really good at connecting with people and really good at like, pinpointing social issues and yet they don't really make it very far in politics or they don't ever make it into politics i mean one i, I can think of one he didn't he lasted a while from minnesota i can't remember his name well but, i'm thinking um, of i'm thinking of Zelensky. oh but, hey 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 but i he, mean who's a, a comedian he became yeah. as funny <laughs> yeah yeah uh, I, you know and and gosh who's the most successful politician of the last five years globally i nominate Zelensky. Zelensky. yeah yeah, yeah. You know, that's that's a good counterpoint. Yeah. And actually, you know, it, it, I, I don't know a ton about Reagan, but I do know that he used humor quite a bit. Oh, yeah. I have I've had on my shelf for a number of years a, a, a reference book, The Little Brown Book of Anecdotes. It's actually big and green, but it comes from a little brown publishing. 
Um, and uh, it, it has short anecdotes about famous and semi-famous people, um, you know, listed alphabetically and then, and then numbered. And two of the largest sections in the book are on Ronald Reagan and Calvin Coolidge, interestingly enough. Oh, that's funny. Um, so <laughs> I do have my, I actually have my Coolidge oh. mug right here, but that's another matter. Um, but yeah, there, there is, sometimes there is this confluence of, uh, well, I, I was thinking about, you know, just to tie into this, I was thinking about it. It's almost like you can laugh at things only so long because mm -hmm. the laughter works with some people, but right. then a certain type of person that comes along who doesn't like, I was just reading something about, from Putin speaking about, he talking about Palestine and just reading what he was saying. He's in the middle of invading a country and, yeah. and, committing war crimes, doing horrendous, horrendous things and killing hundreds of thousands of people on his own side. Mm -hmm. And he's like trying to have some moral high ground. And like any comedian would just like be like, but but people don't even laugh at it anymore. They're not even yeah. like, well, what an idiot. You know, yeah. they're not they're not able to even. And, and maybe that's good, though, is that we've exhausted talking about comedy and now we need to get serious. It's, it's, and yeah, it's good. Yeah, go ahead, John. Sorry. I, I do think that there's kind of a belief, and, and maybe sometimes it's true, that if you can make enough fun of someone, you can break the spell of um, of their influence, mm -hmm. um, at least pre prevent their, their influence from growing. It's it's probably, it, it may be more effective in in some situations than, than in others. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't think it, I guess it didn't work in the 1930s. Well, what is it that we like about that, though? Because there is a certain sense in which somebody becomes so humiliated, they transcend humor. They transcend like the normal, like things that would just shame you. And you, like, you know, if you had an affair, I remember, uh, what's his name? He was a Democratic, I think it was a Democratic guy. Uh, he was running, his wife was dying, he ended up, uh, Jonathan Edwards. He yeah. ended up yeah. having an affair. It was a big thing, blah, blah, blah. Fast forward to today, and it's like, just using Trump as an example, or even just, you know, any of the MAGA group, you know? Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, all these people have almost like transcended shame. They've transcended the humor. Like she's advocating, you know, family values. And meanwhile, she's at a, uh, at a, uh, what's it called? A, a movie theater. Or I don't know what she was doing. And she's, you know, doing things that are not great. You know what I mean? Like that, that completely. Yes. And, and she just keeps going. Nobody like, it's like, it's like, everybody's like, oh yeah, that's really ironic and terrible and funny, but nobody on her own, nobody that supports her goes, oh my gosh, wow, that's, Pretty yeah. ironic, you know. Yeah, you know, I, um, I have struggled with this idea myself, and just in 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 terms of the way I, I see it working out right now, I uh, was recommended to me to read an old book called The Big Con, uh, which was a 1940s book written by a, a linguistics prof about um, the classic con men of uh, the early 20th century, and one of the observations that he makes is that. The, the con begins by the con man recognizing that in the mark there is some kind of um, some kind of larceny, you know, some some willingness to to um, transgress for for personal gain. But when a person has believed the con man, the person is very, very reluctant ever to admit that he's been conned. Mm -hmm. So so it comes to the point, even some of these guys are on trial. And their former marks are brought in as character witnesses for the defense. Uh, you know, at that stage, just the, you know, and then an, another, just one of those little business tip self-help books that's really popular that I read that I found useful um, 
uh, leadership and, and self-deception. It's kind of a classic, I think, of that genre, which describes how when we violate our own sense of our moral selves, then we construct a way to place blame on other people for that so we can maintain our view of ourselves. It's just the entrenched way that we can't admit our weakness, yeah. uh, our, our finitude, our mistakes, our sinfulness, our own, our own persistent evil. Um, and um, we'll, we'll go to great lengths of absurdity to, to maintain that in, in many cases. And, and maybe that, um, what was I saying, maybe that speaks, that what you just said about the con man, maybe that speaks directly to why they find humor so threatening oftentimes. Yeah. Like not yeah. their leaders, not the ideologue, but the individuals protecting the ideologue often find humor so threatening because it really in, exposes those incongruities. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like, hey, um, they need to like keep that at bay because it, it, they can't have that being spread around because it kind of uh, exposes them, I guess you could say. Yeah. But I, I will say, though, that to a degree, th- the incongruities have kind of ceased in a lot of ways from even mattering. And this kind of goes with what you guys are saying, but hip- uh, it feels like we've hypo- we've exhausted hypocrisy as a possible critique. And it makes me wonder, like there and but there are still like really important lessons we could laugh at and learn from these. One of the craziest ones came during COVID when the right to go against vaccines hijacked the left's slogan of my body, my choice. Think of the irony of this. Now, the thing is, is instead of dealing with this irony and like trying to flesh it out, it really just it was silence. It was just, mm-hmm. yeah, and yeah. you, you would see some people trying to like nuance it out a little bit, like why a vaccine is different than uh, carrying a baby to term or something like that. Um, but the irony itself should speak to, and this is my big thing with the whole abortion issue is that we should be able to laugh at how ridiculously difficult this issue is. We should be, mm-hmm. it shouldn't be as uh clear and cut and dry all the time i don't want to get anybody because we're all pastors i don't want to get anybody in trouble by going too far into difficulties but i do want to say though that 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 was kind of a glaring moment of kind of hypocrisy on both sides that neither one of them could deal with the other uh and still maintain their position um, and, uh, and yeah, it, it, it just seems like that whole framework has been exhausted of, because it just yeah. falls in silence. Hypocrisy just falls in silence now. It, it no longer self-reflects. Well, yeah. I think it has people, maybe, maybe it's a intuitive part of the human condition that, um, when the stakes are so high, when people put the stakes of everything, like every issue is like a, a, a do or die issue. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I think that when the stakes are like that, humor is considered, or, or even, hypocrisy doesn't matter because it's about power and success. You know what I mean? And, and so I think he, Niebuhr really captures that. I mean, he really captures the fact that, you know, he, humor does have its limitations. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great point. It really is. So uh, moving on to part three, laughing at ourselves part, which we are already kind of wading into a little bit, but he says, um, uh, I think this is one of the first lines. It says the sense of humor is even more important provisionally in dealing with our own sins than in this uh, than in dealing with the sins of others. And this actually does go along with that point really well. Is that unless we take some of these incongruities and hypocrisies and ironies about ourselves, unless we take these things to heart, they're kind of useless. Like, mm-hmm. th- or they're not as beneficial 
um, as, uh, as, you know, pointing out somebody else's hypocrisy is never as beneficial as finding your own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this was, this is, this is the antidote to what we were just talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Um, the, the inability to, to let go of an entrenched, entrenched position is also the inability to laugh at ourselves. Yeah. And, and laughing at ourselves is, is the, is an instantaneous, spontaneous, um, admission of our fallibility. And I think, oh, go ahead, Zach. I was just gonna say, this is probably where I see the verse that he chose being most prevalent in the sense that the sovereignty of God allows for a certain self-forgetfulness and that mm -hmm. self-forgetfulness is kind of, you can accomplish that a little bit more easily when you don't take yourself so seriously, when you practice humor, you know, yeah. what I mean? you recognize yeah. the your situation, but also the blessing of it, I guess. Yeah. And this, this is maybe the difference in the sense, you know, what the, the, the difference between the laughter of despair, um, which just says life doesn't make any sense and I'm weak and full stop. That's the laughter of despair versus the laughter of, of, of faith that recognizes that, that, that God is, is sovereign and God is um, able to accomplish his purpose yeah. uh, in his mercy. And it's here that we can actually detect kind of the changeover from laughter into prayer. Yeah. Um, he has a great quote here. It's, it's somewhat long, but I'll, I'll be brief. Um, we'll see. But uh, he says this, and this is on page 121. He says, uh, there is furthermore another dimension in genuine uh, contrition, which laughter does not contain. It is the awareness of being judged from beyond ourselves. There is something more than self-judgment and genuine contrition. Quote, for me, it is a small thing to be judged of men, declares St. Paul. Neither judge I myself, for I know nothing against myself. He who judges me is the Lord, end quote. In an ultimate sense, the self never knows anything against itself. The self of today may judge the self's action of yesterday as evil. So the rich family on the, on the comedy never sees its own fault. It's the butler from this outside perspective that sees it. He says, but that means that the self of today is the good self. We are to judge our actions through self-judgment, but we do not become aware of the deep root of evil actions in such judgments. We may judge our sins, but we do not judge ourselves as sinners. The knowledge that we are sinners and that inordinate desires uh, spring from a heart inordinately devoted to itself is a, is, a, uh, is a religious knowledge which in a sense is never achieved except in prayer. Then we experience with St. Paul that, quote, he who judges us is the Lord. There is no laughter in that experience. There is only pain. The genuine joy of reconciliation with God, which is possible only as the fruit of genuine repentance, is a joy which stands beyond laughter, though it need not completely exclude laughter. That, that, is, that is so good. Um, what comes to mind for me is that for our most natural point of human, most natural point of reference for ourselves is other humans. Um, and coming to the understanding that we're just more or less like other humans is important, but it's not the end. Yeah. Uh, there is another frame of reference. Oh, we, I, my mind goes to, yeah. Um, the cross and then the resurrection, the sorrow yes. of the cross. And then yeah. even, Sorrow comes in the night and joy in the morning. 
yeah, yeah, um, yeah. This yeah. Uh, kind of baptism uh, from uh, despair into into the hope of of faith. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. To to recognize that there is a frame of reference other than just we're all human beings and we're kind of messed up. Ha ha. Right. Um, and ending ending in the, the the laughter of despair, death, and nothing um, is is counterbalanced by um, yeah. The incarnate Christ shows us that we are we are indeed you know sinners, and this is the nature of our sin. So there is is solemn terror in that, but the resurrection shows us that the judgment of God and the mercy of God have met. Mm-hmm. So uh, I really wanted to discuss this idea of the bitterness, the how humor can descend into bitterness, mm-hmm. because it made me think about you know all the humor that I know, and there's something particularly unsettling about a certain subtype of humor. And, you know, this might get us into trouble here on the podcast, but I, I, we spoke about Seinfeld earlier. I've never quite enjoyed Seinfeld. I, know, I, don't, I don't like it, you know, and somebody told me it's probably, and I don't know if this is true because I didn't do any research on it, but that some of the, the philosophical underpinning of their humor is nihilism and hmm. the scenes are not supposed to connect to each other and they're, they're. It's about nothing. It's a show it's about, about nothing. That's part of the nothing. joke though. Yeah. 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 Um, and to me, it, it, it's like a subtype of this almost humor of bitterness. Uh, maybe it's not. I, again, I, I don't want to, you know, I might have a lot of Seinfeld fans on here. But I see the, the same humor in a lot. I see it a lot of humor that almost there's like an edge of bitterness to it. There's an edge of like, and then there's a, there's a different, like almost yeah. very distinctly different type of humor that is like hopeful. You know what I mean? And I, but I think it's most of humor mm-hmm. that is popularized in the United States is almost consumed by the humor of bitterness i i I wouldn't necessarily put it in like a despair humor i can see how you get there though and it really just it's it's hard to read between the lines of writers but it feels more like tragic comedy to me or like um how the bitterness can can make you laugh more um and it's uh and it's kind of within like the the mode of self-deprecation i would say um than a straight nihilism of we're laughing on our way to the grave type of thing but i could be wrong on that i don't know yes yeah i i i I, I mean i would i would have a good job go ahead well just just what i was going to say is i i think i think yeah i don't think that the 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 writers and producers of seinfeld were probably committed nihilists um i think they were committed capitalists um and uh and this was a a kind of a seat for the show that would send it apart and so forth um but um i it does occur to me i think about the different ways that my wife and i react to humor um there are things that we enjoy together there are things that one of us enjoys more than the other but we both enjoy and then there are things that only i enjoy i would say um we both enjoy fraser um i enjoy seinfeld much more than her and I enjoy South Park and she doesn't enjoy it at all. Uh, <laughs> Which and, is and, hilarious. And, and, and that, that may be a range of things. But as I think about what it is that kind of, you know, she'll say, I just don't like these characters, typically. Yeah. And, and, and what, what she likes about the, the, the comedy, you know, the sitcoms that she likes, is that there's a genuine warmth and friendship or family connection mm-hmm. among the characters yeah. That, yeah. That, that overcomes everything. So... You know, at, at the end of the day, you know, Frazier may not get along with his dad and his, he and his brother may fight, but but they still, you know, there's just this abiding core of gracious love 
mm-hmm. uh, in 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 the whole thing. Um, you know, they they're uh, I've, I'm late to the party. I've been watching a lot of of uh, Big Bang Theory, and I'm really struck by the way that they use sitting around and eating food together as a motif in that show, uh, <laughs> as a way of a, a way of showing the the, the group bonding. Oh, interesting. Uh, and, and so forth. Minion. so. Yeah, there's just there's just all kinds of ways that you see glimmers of of, of what this essay about is about just in, in popular culture and the way people react to it. Well, and and I actually you could almost say that because he talks about like how humor can go to bitterness. I think is what we're talking mm-hmm. about. Humor can yeah, go yeah. To, yeah. And, actually, and, and it, so it starts with incongruities, then it goes to humor, which is how you get to humor. And then from humor, you get to bitterness. And again, I, I hate to bring them up again, but I think that I. One of the things I've been realizing just recently as I've been, and I was, I was reading this, it really popped into my head. And as I was reading this specific section, it was um, some anti, like anti-theists, right? They, um, they're very good at identifying the incongruities of mm-hmm. Christian faith or theism or whatever. And, um, but it almost consumes them to a place of bitterness. And I think you could go mm-hmm. the, the other side easily, but I think I was just thinking of like, like a specific a couple specific atheist uh anti-theist and I, I was thinking like the benefit to what they're doing actually is that they are really good at identifying incongruities but then it almost becomes like it consumes them to a place of bitterness where they they that's all they talk about is those incongruities it, it consumes them to a place where it's like i, I don't know it, it's like sometimes i'm trying to flush out but yeah it really it brought it to my mind um no, i'm not I, saying I, that all atheists are bitter or anything um that's that's not what i that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that there's I, I, there's a sub subgroup for sure that maybe it's just Twitter. Maybe that's why I, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Twitter runs with bitter. Or X, sorry. Yeah. yeah X doesn't um, run with anything. I want to get you guys' take on this because uh, in, in this section, section three, mm-hmm. um, he interestingly draws the idea of humor and self-transcendence into de- the development of a child. And makes a really interesting observation that kids really only learn humor once they become more Mm -hmm. self-aware. As a dad, Zach, and as a dad and granddad, John, uh, do you guys do you guys think that this checks out? Yeah, I I definitely do. I think probably Um, he got the ages wrong. That's the only thing that I would disagree with. Okay, the ages. What does he say? Five or six? Six or seven. I think they learn it a little bit earlier than that because my kids are definitely definitely picked up humor pretty quick. And I think probably a lot of kids do. Yeah. I I think, I think there's a lot, a lot there. Um, You know, it would, it would be fun to bring Jean Piaget to the table, I suppose, to, uh, you know, discuss patterns of child development. Well, and well, I would add to, it's also, you, you realize something that I was taught very young as a a way to kind of overcome, uh, you know, if somebody makes fun of you, you know what I mean? Or somebody says something bad about you as a kid, I could, I could distinctly remember. And it's something that I've wanted to teach my kids for that precise reason. I remember my brothers, uh, I had a really big head. I still have a big head, but as a little kid, it was like this adult head on a little kid's body. It was huge. And my brothers were making fun of how big my head was. And my mom's like, you know, sometimes you got to learn to laugh at yourself, you know? And, and she, I think she meant it in a very like kind of endearing way. Like, as soon as you recognize that you have a big head and, and it's okay and it's not a big deal, you can laugh along and then they're going to move on and you're going to move on. You know what I mean? She was trying to, instead of being like, hey, you know, kind of constantly coming back and defending me and protecting me, she was kind of giving me a tool to say, hey, like, you're going to be okay. And 
it's okay to have a laugh about this. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. It is, it is a, it, it's, it's a, it's a tremendous insight. Um, I think uh, it probably very loosely just the development of humor, the ability to laugh at oneself probably develops along with um, probably some growing sense of moral responsibility as well. Um, that um, I'm, I'm responsible for the way that I interact with other people. Well, and I, I would just add that, you know, I, I, again, not an expert in mental health or anything, but I think when somebody is unable to laugh at themselves, and I think even in development, as they're growing up, if they're unable to kind of look, take that view of themselves, um, yeah. I just in my experience, again, just an anecdote, but it seems like there's a lot of pathologies that are linked to an inability to like laugh at yourself. You take yourself, yeah. too you, yeah. you, uh, you become so focused on like your inner life that you can't like look at yourself and be like, Oh, well, that's hilarious. You know? Yeah. yeah. And so I, again, I don't want to say too much on that because it's all. Well, and again, yeah, our public life is dominated by reflection on such things. Look at like ser very serious conditions. Like schizophrenia you know i mean part of the difficulty of schizophrenia is that you they say that one of the hard at least when i was in counseling school they said one of the hardest things to treat is a schizophrenic who doesn't believe they have schizophrenia yeah. in other words they they're the, you can't enter in the only way that you can really enter in is to enter into the delusion that they're having about themselves mm -hmm. um and so i think it's a, a sign of health in children i think that's the long story of where i was going well, yeah, yeah, and so this this goes into kind of the waning of uh, what we would call personalism these days is that the person is in a way no longer as heightened as it once was. I don't I don't know if you guys could agree with that or not, but if we're putting two and two together, if humor is kind of dying out of uh, politics, out of uh, certain religious contexts, are we losing the ability of that self-awareness? Um is is it a cultural thing? Am I am I just projecting onto it? Or I mean, to a certain degree, granted, you know, we've always had these problems of self-awareness and things like this, but our politics today is particularly toxic. And I think a lot of it is related to we don't laugh and we don't uh the hypocrisy no longer works and um and some of these things uh seem to be dying out. So I'm wondering if if maybe we are just not as self-aware as we once were. Well, it, it does seem to be the self-awareness seems to be excluded in some areas and just amplified in others. Um, you know, um, the the self-deprecating comedian is is really, you know, that's that's the kind of person I think who dominates stand up. Mm -hmm. um, it was a generation ago that Dennis Miller would end his rants by saying, but I could be wrong. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, uh, so, so I, I feel like, um, you know, there, there remains 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to bail um, and appearing nightly uh, at, you know, uh, for the next two weeks at such and such comedy club uh, yeah. or something like that. I can't help but notice that now we each have with social media, we each have kind of our own personal yeah. PR uh, system, our own like uh, self-advertising yeah. system where we can edit ourselves um, we can only show the, the good parts. Instagram, I mean, like like pictures that people can, um, you know, give kind of a fake version of themselves. And uh, there, so there is a self-awareness, mm -hmm. but it's more just like uh, promoting a certain side of the self, I guess. Yeah. 
uh, and and we have the ability to to mitigate our lesser selves, I guess. Yeah, we do. And at the same time, we have the opportunity to just be honest and free and open as well. And, you know, knowing, knowing that a lot of people in pastoral ministry listen to this pod, I mean, let's just acknowledge that you can exhaust yourself, Mm -hmm. um, you know, trying to, to be that person that you aren't. And you can also turn self-deprecation into merely shtick, uh, or you can just be honest, you know, as, and, and, you know, keeping by the grace of God, having a sufficient level of self-understanding and self-awareness that, that you're just you. Yeah. So the last thing I wanted us to comment on, oh, and we should say something about that last section. And I think we brought it up many times on here. Uh, It's interesting that this is kind of a, this book is kind of a prelude to nature and destiny where he dives more into the human condition. Um, so it's kind of like laughing about the topic before he gets into it a little bit. But he, in Nature and Destiny, he does draw out, uh, you know, on the very first page, uh, man has always been his own most vexing problem. We're always stepping over our own toes. When we try to understand ourselves more, we get more confused. Um, we are a problem unto ourselves. On a co- And so he, in the last section, he gets into the, like the cosmic level of things and uh, tragedy and um and uh things that are out of our control frustrations you know um but uh i I want to wrap with uh and i think you guys both had a chance to listen to this because i tweeted it out but um uh, pete davidson's cold open on saturday night saturday night live Mm -hmm. i wanted to play it right here but i'm afraid of copyright stuff so i'll just uh i'll just read what he said um and i and i want you guys to respond to it Um, He says, uh, this week we saw the horrible images and stories of Israel and Gaza, and I know what you're thinking, who better to comment on it than Pete Davidson, which is a perfect, you know, self-deprecating line from right from the beginning. And he says, well, in a lot of ways, um, I'm a good person to to talk about it, because when I was seven years old, my dad was killed in a terrorist attack. And for our listeners who don't know, his dad was a firefighter who was killed on 9-11. And he continues, so I know something about what that's like. I saw so many terrible pictures this week of children suffering, Israeli children, Palestinian children, and it took me back to a really horrible, horrible place. No one in this world deserves to suffer like that, especially not kids. After my dad died, my my mom tried pretty much everything she could to cheer me up. I remember one day when I was eight, she she got me what she thought was a Disney movie, but it was actually Eddie Murphy's stand-up special, Delirious. And we played it in, in the car ride home. And I forget he's young enough when they probably had uh, uh, video on in minivans and stuff. But uh, And when she heard the things Eddie Murphy was saying, she tried to take it away. But then she noticed something. For the first time in a long time, I was laughing again. And he said, I don't understand it. I really don't, and I never will. But sometimes comedy is really the only way forward through tragedy. My heart is with everyone who li- whose lives have been destroyed this week. But tonight, I'm going to do what I've always done in the face of tragedy. And that's try to be funny. Remember, I said, try. And some more self-deprecation there. And then he yeah. ends it with, um, it's live from New York, at Saturday night. Now, what are you guys' thoughts on this in light of what we just read Niebuhr say? There's some really profound things here, but maybe there's also some loose ends in the logic and where he leaves things that might need tightened up. But what do you guys think, I guess, pro- pros and cons of what he said? 
Well, I don't want to be the classic pastor, but I think, <laughs> he, you know, uh, I think that he's doing all that he has the resources to do with what he has, you know? And I think there's, I think the, as we read, you know, a while back in uh, beyond tragedy, you know, the, the cross allows us, faith allows us to go beyond tragedy. Um, and I think that for him, there's a limitation there. You know I mean? There's the limitation of not having the cross. And I it think ends in laughter in a way. Yeah. That's all you got, you know? Um, and I mean, I'm not trying to, I mean, I, I think he's, I think he still has a point, you know I mean? About, yeah, I think you know, it's profound. I mean, yeah, he's talking about his experience. So I, I don't want to discredit what he's, he's saying, Hey, uh, look, yeah. Experience of suffering. That's speaks volumes. Filled with suffering. But I, I don't, I really, and again, classic pastor. I don't think that humor can be the end. It, it's got to lead us to something. Yeah. It's got to lead us to the recognition. Yeah. We are not, uh, that we're not going to be able to resolve the limitations um yeah that we possess La laughing doesn't cure the middle east problem but right it's a nice right. provisional space yeah i would also say I, I i don't know that it i don't know that it's always the right response you know what i mean i don't know that in in the face of such a, a tragedy like this of this i mean if you want to bring in all the political ties that tie into this issue that's unfolding and all the meddling that's going on by bigger nations who who have very it's kind of like laughing in the face of Hitler. I mean, just some of the stuff that's going on behind the scenes. I mean, they're connecting this to Russia. They're connecting it to other countries. And I don't know that we should be laughing. I think maybe this is the time that we should be taking it more seriously than we have in the past. I don't know. Mm -hmm. No, you've got a really good point there, Zach. It's just, I mean, there's so many aspects of this that show how deeply intertwined and embedded uh, evil is. But yeah, this is, I, I have a very similar reaction. He has, he has come to, he's come to the doorway. Hmm. He's come to the threshold. The next step is to, is to, is to step in. Um, and uh, yeah, and that's, that's what takes you to the Holy of Holies. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's by way of, of the crucifixion. John Weatherly, thank you so much for being on with us. It was a pleasure. Uh, thank you both. Um, <laughs> Well, that about does it for this week's episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. I want to thank again our guest, Dr. John Weatherly, for coming back on with us. And I want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. Like and subscribe, write us a good review, and follow us on Twitter at Love Thy Neighbor for news and updates. Maybe drop us a couple bucks in our tip jar while you're there. Take care, everybody, and we'll see you on the next one.